0: Sharpnose had told their dad, don't ever forget, I admonish you, don't ever forget that your brother is buried in Pennsylvania and I wanted him home.
1: I'm Matthew Philp.
0: I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin
2: Hozier.
1: And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique.
3: We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create
2: them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. On this episode, my co-host Elizabeth Thompson talks to Yufna Soldier Wolf, the youngest child of Mark Soldier Wolf, an Arapaho tribal elder former Marine and veteran of the Korean War, who died in 2018 at the age of 87. Mark dedicated his life to preserving the culture of the Arapaho tribe, whose reservation sits northeast of Casper, Wyoming, documenting his tribe's stories and history and advocating for the rights of indigenous people. As you'll hear Yufna describe, her father, who comes from a line of chiefs and warrior women and men, carried with him the wounds from a life of abuse after abuse after abuse. Like hundreds of thousands of Native American children, his father and his uncle, Mark was sent to an Indian boarding school as a child. These schools, started in the late 1800s and mostly now shut down, were tools of assimilation, where children as young as three to age 20 were sent far from home where they had their names changed, hair cut, were forced to attend church, and were forbidden to speak their native languages. Thousands of children were beaten, sexually abused, used for slave labor, and died there. The true scope of their destruction is still unclear, as many schools destroyed or lost their records. Yufna's great uncle, Little Chief, Son of the Arapaho chief Sharpnose, was one of the children who never came home. His body buried with the more than 180 kids who died attending the Carlisle Industrial Boarding School in Pennsylvania. In 2017, before Mark died, Yufna helped finish the work he, his father, and his father's father had started. Seeing Little Chief's remains returned to Wyoming to be buried with the rest of the family. Following the work of the Soldier Wolves, the school has started repatriating the remains of other children to tribes who want their kids home. Listen as Yufna describes the special healing work she did with her father and other members of the tribe around the trauma they carry from boarding schools, the US's treatment of native veterans and continued taking of land, the efforts to grow and thrive via decolonization work and the rejection of a patriarchal worldview, and the work she's doing to preserve her father's archives that he hoped would continue to educate us all on the history of the Arapaho people. Okay, let's hear from Elizabeth and Yufna.
3: What was growing up with your dad like? What kind of a dad was he?
0: Um, He was a Marine. <laughs> So that meant getting up, making our beds, cleaning up, actually running. We used to run a lot as kids. (laughs) And then a lot of ceremony, a lot of interactions with our elders, our old people. At that time, we still would go around visiting his relatives, my mom's relatives. We were around people we knew and we were around our language and our stories, but he was pretty strict. So that's kind of how we were raised
3: tell me about running how far would you have to run would he run with you
0: i used to run with my sister my older sister would get up and run down the road and it's about a mile mile and a half where we live is pretty isolated so it's just this dirt road all the way down and all the way back and growing up he taught us cadences and i didn't know that they were bad <laughs> they were bad word cadences my teacher would be like she's singing again and he would be like i'll talk with her <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so he taught you how to curse and you didn't realize? Yeah, all this time while we're doing Marine Corps cadences running down the road and we didn't know. I didn't know they were bad words. What what were some of the words that he taught you? Um, what was the one like, son of a, we're digging a ditch, you know? We were used to it because that's how he was. Being in the Marines, that's what he brought back and that's the discipline he knew. How do you think
3: your father viewed fatherhood and sort of a father's role in
0: in the family as a dad? I think it was hard for him. I think it was hard for my dad. I do have 10 siblings. Mm -hmm. um, I have four sisters and five brothers. So growing up, a lot of my older siblings were already gone when I was growing up. You know, they moved on, had their own school and work and kids and whatnot. My Mm -hmm. mom was the one, you know, doing all the motherly stuff. And then he was that supplement of discipline education, knowledge, <laughs> and then just really incorporating our cultural knowledge into us. But I think it was hard because he grew up with his grandparents. His dad mostly went to boarding school. Mm-hmm. When his dad went off to boarding school, he came back, he got married, and then his parents gave him to his grandparents, And so he was raised by his grandparents. So he kind of knew the life more, either Arapaho knowledge, the cultural knowledge, But I think for so many families, a lot of them didn't know what their roles were because of boarding school. And then he was drafted into the Korean War. So the way he lived and going to the military and coming back impacted him being a father.
3: One thing that I thought was really interesting about Arapaho culture, that that women were chieftains or Mm -hmm. warriors and that your father's own grandmother, pretty nose, she fought in the battle of Little Bighorn, correct?
0: Yeah, and a lot of people see that as interesting or amazing, but that was our way of life. That's how we survived. We didn't follow a patriarchal Westernized system. We had our own structure, and that's something my dad passed on to me. He said, "Be proud of who you are. Know that your ancestors were just as you know. Now it's this like whole equal rights and equity thing, and mm-hmm. we were always that way, mm-hmm. but then." as we become civilized and better, you know, or that equity went away. We've always had that equity, that equal balance in our lives. And it seemingly like went off balance and it's slowly going back again. And people are realizing that females do have a voice. What they have to say is important and I wouldn't have known that without my dad and without my mom teaching me that.
3: I found an interview with your dad describing the relationship between the Arapaho people and the white man. And he tells a story about a French colonist visiting the tribe and realizing that there was gold on their land. And what comes next in the story is how so much of history has played out for indigenous people. The way your father ends the story, however, I thought was so powerful and profound.
4: A Frenchman came. He was married to a Arapaho warrior woman. And the Arapaho gave him something to eat. He was sitting back enjoying his meal. And he saw these kids playing. And one, one of them stones was kicked this way and he picked it up. He looked at it, it was almost yellow. And you know what that was? Gold.
1: When the Frenchmen
4: went to trade with this gold, the white people got hold of them and killed all of them. But during the course of that time, they had horse races. They had spear throwing, tomahawk making, see who had made the best tomahawk, and the weaponry. With all his effort, the white man came with his new modern weapons and killed over half of us. <laughs> and after that, they said, oh, I'll let it go. He said, there's not too many of them anyway. We'll get them later. Maybe not now, but later in the future. So we're we'll waiting for that future.
3: That could be read as a statement of defiance, of... You didn't get us. We we kept going and we survived. And also of an ominous statement of we're still waiting for the rest of this to play out. What do you think his intention was?
0: I think he meant all of that. And I think we're still going through it. Who says we're done, you know, going through those rounds of assimilation and genocide? We talk about policy and Indian policy. A lot of it was grounded in that those ideas of, you know, kill the Indian, save the man.
3: The Arapaho people lived on a huge swath of America and the Midwest um, and the Southwest, and now they are mostly on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. That's about 3,000 square miles. But prior to this, your family was in Colorado, your family was in Montana.
0: So if you look at the history of our tribe, slowly we migrated out from the Great Lakes and evolved into the High Plains tribes that we are today. And one of our main homes was what people now call Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado. And Mm -hmm. when Sand Creek Massacre happened, and I think it was 1867, basically they killed a lot of Cheyennes and Arapahoes there. They massacred them. A lot of the tribes, when that encroachment start happening, were fighting back in little Indian battles here and there. Eventually, our chiefs ended up in Wyoming in the Powder River Basin, which is the northwestern, northeastern part of Wyoming. And um, we were negotiating Fort Laramie Treaties, 1851, Fort Laramie Treaties, 1868. And within those treaties, we were bound within a territory of where we could stay. The Rappos ended up going to Fort Robinson and Pine Ridge with the, the Ogallala Lakotas. Eventually our tribe wanted to have our own land. We wanted our own reservation. And so supposedly we negotiated with the government and the government said, we're gonna sell your lands in Colorado and turn around and pay for your land in the Wind River Reservation. So we basically had to pay for our own part of our the reservation here in Wyoming. That's the history and that's why my dad called Colorado our homelands, our ancestral homelands because that's where we used to live until gold was discovered, people start moving into Colorado and then I see it as really being scandalous if you really look at it and think mm-hmm. about like, oh, let's, let's get these people off of their land and then turn around and reuse that land to put them somewhere they don't want to be. We were promised our own reservation. It never happened. So we're here on the Wind River Reservation. It is scandalous.
3: I think there are so many Americans that intellectually can say, oh, Native Americans were here before us. This isn't our land. This is stolen land. Yeah. But I don't think that people really let themselves understand the horrific things that happened that settlers did. The rounding up of tribes and, and being told, you can either stay here on this land that we put aside for you, quote unquote, or buy it back. Or be pushed into an
0: area that's not your home and if you don't we'll kill you and once they're forced onto the reservations they're taking their children away from them and sending them off to boarding school
3: let's talk about the boarding schools do they still exist um boarding schools still exist hi this is elizabeth chiming in from post-production I wanted to tell our listeners a little more about Indian boarding schools before Yufna and I talk about them in this part of the podcast. Indian boarding schools were started in the late 1800s as part of the Civilization Fund Act. They lasted for about a century from the 1860s and went into the late 1970s when they started to be shut down. And as you just heard Yufna tell me, a handful actually still do exist. It's estimated that hundreds of thousands of Native American children were sent to these schools, and so many died and were killed there. The U.S. actually doesn't know the total number of children who were lost to these schools, however, because many of them destroyed records or lost them over time. There were 357 Indian boarding schools in this country and many were run by the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church and other Christian denominations. About 100 were run by the US government and the US has never formally acknowledged or apologized for the horrors inflicted on children and young adults at Indian boarding schools. The first few were founded by a man named Richard Henry Pratt, who was a former cavalry officer. Pratt started the Carlisle Industrial School in Pennsylvania in 1879 and this is where great uncle. Uncle Little Chief went. He was the son of Chief Sharpnose, who is Yufna's great grandpa, and Little Chief died at Carlisle as a teenager a couple years after arriving. You heard Yufna quote Richard Henry Pratt earlier in our interview. Pratt said that the reason for starting these schools was to, quote, kill the Indian to save the man, meaning to essentially stamp out Native American culture, heritage, identity, in the name of white supremacy. Coming up to, you'll also hear Yufna and I talk about Sharp Nose, her great grandpa, being asked to work as a guide for President Chester A. Arthur on a fishing trip to Yellowstone. Sharpnose was a high-ranking Arapaho chief who had represented his people in the Sioux delegation to Washington, D.C. and had worked with the government in the past. He worked and was really patient with the US to find a suitable reservation for the Arapaho people of their own, not to be shared with any other tribes. The U.S. promised them that they would get this land and that land never came and still has not come. Ahead, you'll hear what happened when President Arthur arrived for that fishing trip. Let's get back to Yufna and our section on boarding schools. Your father actually went to a different school uh, called Haskell, but some of the Arapaho people did go to Carlisle, including your great uncle, correct?
0: I think first, let's call it what it really is. It's assimilation and genocide. That's what they were doing. And if you look at our history, the boarding school started in 1879, but in 1878, we we finally settled on the Wind River Reservation. It was the East County Reservation. What enacted all of that was Custer's last stand. Um, it frightened America knowing that they lost to Native American tribes and it reeled Christian rhetoric into the point of, we need to save these Indians, these savages, these noble savages. And if they're not noble savages, they're ignoble savages. And so we're either romanticized or we're the bad guy all the time. So having that knowledge and having these chiefs, these war chiefs settle down on reservations, the only way they can make them do what the government wants is to take their children and hold them hostage and take them away and do what they want with them and that right there broke our families that right there broke our tribes a lot of those children's like my great uncle who passed away in carlisle he died while his mm-hmm. dad sat here and his parents sat here waiting for him to come home so when these kids were sent off to school a lot of them were three years old five years old teenagers, anybody and everybody was taken. A lot of the stories were that the Bureau of Indian Affairs would send out someone to look for children. Tribal people were basically hiding them. They'd hide them under wagons, hide them in cellars. Oh no, we don't have kids, they passed away last year. Just anything to get these kids from not leaving them. And if you anybody has any kids and you know how, how loving and what type of parent you wanna be, you wanna give your children anything and everything, you're gonna protect them as much as you can. A lot of tribes tried to do that a long time ago. Um, What the children didn't see once they were at school was parents weren't allowed to interact with their children. So their children in turn had resentment towards their parents or their grandparents thinking that, well, they didn't fight for me. They didn't come for me. They don't want me. Why would I go back? So it's a huge intergenerational trauma cycle of, you know, how do we move forward? How do we heal? My dad knew that. He lived that. When kids got
3: sent to these schools, you just said that their parents weren't allowed to contact them. Were they told mm-hmm. by the schools that they just weren't contacting them? Was it
0: like a psychological tool? I think so. once the kids learn how to read and write, and like my grandpa, like my dad's dad, he actually wrote letters home to his parents and was like, I want to come home. What can I do to come home? Then the superintendent or whomever at that time would, would chime in and be like, oh no, um, your parents are doing fine, you know, don't worry about them, things are going well. And the only way they could come home is if their parent had passed away and they had to come bury them and they'd end up staying home again. A lot of these children didn't come home. A lot of them were buried there. A lot of them went there with diseases already, already went there with malnutrition and they passed away when they got there. A lot of those children later on through reports, some of them were shot, some of them were beaten, some of them were killed there. Some of the girls were raped, they had children, and those babies were buried there. Who was being accountable? And where's the transparency today? They were so unimportant to be documented that these children, the government could even tell them what they passed away from. Kids were sent to school, they
3: had their hair cut, they had their names changed. Mm-hmm. They weren't allowed to speak their languages. Mm-hmm. They were beaten or punished severely if they were caught speaking to each other in their their language. And as you said, a lot of them died just simply being transported to the schools because they weren't being taken care of. With your great uncle, with Little Chief,
0: how old was he when he died? I believe he was 14 or 15 at that time. When he left, he was 13. And he actually was one of the little warriors at Custer's Last Stand, he was there. There was mention of him and other children at that time being at Custer's Last Stand. And so to see that last part of being free to a huge war, to being settled down, to be shipped off and then pass away, that was his life. And his
3: father was Sharpnose, mm-hmm. Yes. Who's a
0: major Arapaho
3: chief. And did you say that the president of the United States came to be shown?
0: President Arthur. He wanted to be toward he wanted to be toured around in Wyoming, and he wanted to be taken to a place that they can later set aside as a national park. They called out to the superintendent. He got his best warrior, his tour guide, who was who was my great grandpa Sharpnose, and he said, "Yeah, I'll bring him out. I'll take him for a tour." They went up to what would later be called Yellowstone, and when the president came, our war chief Sharpnose said, "Where's my son?" "Oh, sorry to let you know, your son passed away." And, well, could it have been at least, you know, some humanistic value in that and approach him and say, hey, we're sorry you lost your son. What can we do to help you facilitate bringing him home? None of that happened. A lot of the interactions with tribes and non-tribal people has never been positive. None of those. And it's still like that today. None of us have interacted with non-tribal people in a positive way. How do we move forward from that? When the president went home, he sent back a saddle, a horse and some coins to Sharpnose for touring him around in Wyoming. But at no mention at that time did he ever talk about, Oh yeah, by the way, you know, your son passed away and we'll bring him home. Mm-hmm. And so if you Google it, you can and they do have photos of them going on this tour of Wyoming at
3: that time. Your great grandfather, he really worked with the government. Yeah, he made himself available to try to work with the United States, and they killed his son.
0: Yeah, they never gave him the reservation he was trying to negotiate the whole time, Yeah, we're still waiting. Do they know how Little Chief died? Did is there
3: any details about how he died? He no. was sick.
0: Yeah, he was sick, and that's the one thing that we were always pushing for because, you know, it makes it seem like. They were just there to make money and they weren't there to document anything with any of the children. The undocumented records don't even show what these little kids passed away from. We were so unimportant to them that it didn't matter, I guess, at that time.
3: Your family grows up with missing children, with missing members of the family who are buried at this cemetery Mm -hmm. in Carlisle. You contact the school and, and ask them to start the process to repatriate the remains of your great uncle, Little Chief, as well as uh, members of the Arapahoe tribe, Horse and Little Plume, who are also children who died. And you were told no at first. Well,
0: actually, it's no longer a school. It's an Army War College now. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I sent a letter and it started generations before me my dad's uncle my dad their dad had asked because their grandpa Sharpnose had told their dad don't ever forget i admonish you don't ever forget that your brother is buried in pennsylvania and i wanted him home so after all these generations of them asking my dad's dad asking his big brother asking my dad asking always being told no or shifted around and it's so far from here that You can't just drive over there and be like, hey, can we get our kids back? For me, was to finally educate myself up enough to know about what I need to do and request that, hey, you need to follow these laws. You guys made these laws, you need to follow them just as much as we do and to be accountable and be transparent. Basically, I sent a letter to the War College and the War College had said, oh no, sorry, but we feel your sentiments. I have a Native American wife and our children are half and I really feel your pain, but these children aren't going nowhere. And I was like, nope, hold on. You gotta follow the laws just as much as we do. You have lawyers, you have people who have process and protocol, I wanna talk to them. If not, you're out of compliance for a lot of these laws. And it took me having to know these laws to be able to move it forward. And it wasn't just my family, there's so many other children that went off to other boarding schools that have never Mm -hmm. came home either. When you talk Mm -hmm. about what happened when they got there, the train, literally, it was a cattle train that took these children from Wyoming to Chicago to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And they rode these cattle cars, not knowing what they're going to do with just their blankets and, you know, hoping that the best outcome is going to happen. And not knowing they're never gonna see their their parents again is heartbreaking. But when they got there, they were still mistreated. As soon as you pull up to Carlisle, and I've been there, there's a little jail to the side right there and it has a dungeon. And if they were misbehaving, not doing what they were supposed to do, they shackled them up and threw them in that dungeon. And who's to say whatever happened to those children? accountability is huge so when the government says all these tribes need to do this or that well it has to go both ways when these children got there they were put in little handcuffs and their hair was cut if they spoke their language they were beat they couldn't have friends if your relatives were there you couldn't talk to your relatives the boys were kept separate from the girls and just a lot of abuse went on there it's atrocious it's atrocious that it it's looked upon today and maybe just kicked under the rug. Nobody wants to deal with it. Did the kids have to live with white families? Was that part of the experience? They did. They went out, they call them outings. And in the summer they exploited their slave labor to go out and live with families who they didn't know and basically go and do whatever the family did. So if they were ranching, whatnot, that's what they would do for them for the summer. And a lot of them did pass away during the outings.
3: And so was this code for just being sent to be uh, indentured servants to white families during the summer?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot mm-hmm. of them, like my grandpa, um, end up coming home. He knew how to read and write. That was my father's dad. He went to boarding school, came back, and was a really intellectual person. And he helped our business council and our tribe um, really move forward politically.
3: And this person from the army who wrote back to you to politely decline your request that three children, the three of your children be sent back, that this person's not only said no, but said, but I understand because my wife is Native American. That must've been so frustrating.
0: It was. um, I actually just got the letter and was like, I'm through with this, you know, I need to put it away for a while. Mm -hmm. And I put it away for like a year, I forgot all about it. And then I was like, Oh yeah, I need to pick this up and go again. And I, what I did was actually did a call out to, um, just my reservation, little newspaper. And I was like, I'm going to have this meeting. It's about Carlisle and getting our children back. And people start sharing the notice with other tribes. Right. And other tribes are calling me like, Hey, we hear you're having this meeting. And I was like, Whoa, I just put this out to my tribe, but yeah, sure. You're more than welcome to come and it starts snowballing, more people want it to be a part of it. And we put it out on social media and it got to the point where the army couldn't say no anymore because it had so many other tribes that wanted their children back. So then that's how it went forward and we end up having to um, jump through all their little hoops again to make it okay for us to get our children back. A lot of people don't realize it was a lot of legalities, it was a lot of paperwork, a lot of paperwork they wanted to prove we're claiming people we we were related to, a lot of affidavits, so many affidavits. So it it was amazing. It was amazing to see how many tribes actually have gotten and are getting their children back now.
3: Mm -hmm. How many times were you told no before you got them back?
0: Well, it was just that once with the letter, but like I said, it was Sharpnose, it was his sons, Mm -hmm. it was his grandsons, and then me. So it was about how many, five, six generations before we got any of our children back.
3: This has been going on for a century plus. Yeah. Um, did you have anyone helping you with the legal aspects of it?
0: I navigated it with the research that my dad had that he kept through his little collection. Mm-hmm. All the research was there, the stories were there. A lot of our elders were behind me, like support system, You know keep going, do what you're doing. We're here if you need us, we're here, we're here. We wanna be a part of this. We wanna support you. A lot of the legalities were basically put on me and I was wearing a bunch of different hats and um, it was hard, it was difficult. And when it finally happened, it was still difficult because I had to think ahead of time in phases and goals and how we're gonna do that. And I had to think about these older generation went to boarding school, I want them to heal. And I don't need them sick when they get over there because we're gonna be going through a lot of emotions and I need them strong.
3: Mm-hmm. And having
0: to take that extra step to do that was hard, but to put them through that was really helpful because it, they let go of that grief. They let go of all the negativity that they carried their whole lives. And they a lot of them had closure. Tell me about that. Was that a special therapy? Before we went, we went to a training and it's called Mending Broken Hearts our mm-hmm. um, reservation healthcare wellness system here is run by Sunny Goggles. And one of her programs is Mending Broken Hearts. And what it does is it focuses extremely on the decolonization of and incorporating our own traditional practices to heal ourselves. And it's a week, it's a whole intense week of cultural practice, but also incorporating your own grief into it. And then in the end, letting that go, letting that grief go, letting that um, issue not bother you anymore and in a way heal yourself. Mm -hmm. And we all went through that. And when we got there, I knew it was going to be intense because we never went to Carlisle ever. And our elders and our old people would always say, we're not going to Carlisle to visit. We're only going to go and get our kids. That's the only time we're going to go. And so we never went. We never knew how far it was. When we got there and we walked through the cemetery. It hits you and you make you it makes you realize how small those graves are really are. The little mm-hmm. headstones, the small little graves you realize how small that cemetery actually is. And they were actually moved before. They had their own cemetery and then they were uprooted and put somewhere else. Um, so those were other issues that we had to talk about. A lot of the elders that went, they they did just break down. You know, imagine what they've gone through and put their own families through their whole lives. And then those kids are growing up, putting their kids through that. So it's a cycle of um, trauma. Completely. And it's
3: there's so much more, I think, research and knowledge around intergenerational trauma these days. And there is even some evidence, some scientific evidence that it it changes your DNA and what your ancestors have experienced. Mm-hmm. How did your father react to mending broken hearts therapy was he receptive to it
0: yeah i was only told like hey we have this training we want you know this is what it's going to be and i was like okay if that's what you have to offer we'll go through it and we start going through it and you could see my dad being real apprehensive really like I don't want to go through this. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about my, my issue in front of all these people, you know, and Mm -hmm. we had to make sure he knew that it was a safe environment, that what he said was basically confidential. If he wanted it to be, he had issues with it at first. And I, and I literally was like, dad, they don't want to hear everything. They just want to know that you're they're there for you. And if you want to share something, share it. So I think what really got kicked it off was there were other veterans in the group that we Mm -hmm. were in. And I had to be there with him because I knew what would set his PTSD off. And I knew how to help him when he start having these scenarios go through his head. And whether it was something somebody was talking about, something somebody was saying, whether it was a movie, whether it was fireworks, I knew what would set his PTSD off. So I was always prepared, you know, When he went through it, I seen a huge change the end of the week. He had closure and he was like, you know what? I let that stuff go. It's like he just threw everything that ever bothered him down. And he was like, I'm free. I'm free from all of that. I don't need any of that anymore. Yeah. For me, it was real empowering to see him happy. You know, it shouldn't have taken that long, but to enjoy his life or what other little moments he had, you know, so
3: it was good how old was he when he went through that he died at 90 how old was he when he went through mending broken hearts therapy 86 87 so the last few years of his life he had that that's i'm happy that he had that time to heal talking about how we treat veterans and also just men in general I was watching some videos online of people talking about their experiences at boarding schools they're often in group settings where someone will go up to a microphone and, and a room mm-hmm. full of, of people who also, the children or grandchildren, or they themselves went to boarding schools. It's um, a lot of elderly adults talking in, in detail about what happened to them, physical mm-hmm. abuse, sexual abuse. And this is a generation of people who are not taught to talk about sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. They're not taught to talk about the PTSD that haunts them in the middle of the night when they come home from war and I can't it it blows my mind that we expected as a country and that we still expect people to come back from these experiences and just rejoin the world you know just go and be dads and be caregivers and be husbands and be wives and be moms and I think it's such a testament to your dad that he was able to to set that down eventually. Mm -hmm. And so you traveled back to Carlisle in 2016 with your father and other members of your tribe to get Little Chief, Horse, and Little Plume. And this trip is captured in a documentary, Home From School, which will be out later this summer. And we'll give uh, our listeners the details for that at the end of this episode. Ultimately, you were able to bring back Little Chief and horse but not little plume at first is that correct
0: yeah little chief and horse they were complete in coming home and one of the things the army wasn't really going to listen to was that we knew that little plumes headstone had been changed at some point mm-hmm. as i said there was a cemetery and then the post-secondary they were reburied before and so when that happened it said in the reports that we found that are in the archives at Carlisle that show that the tombstones were switched out and we knew that. And when we showed the army, they were like, we can't really um, establish any of that until we go through with the process and we were like, we already know that it's not him, but they still want wanted their process and so. In the end, we did get Little Chief and we did get horse and bring them home. It took a second trip going back and finally finding him in the place that we knew he was at in the first place and finally bringing him home.
3: How frustrating to know that and have them say no or we'll get back to you on that, just the amount of time it took. And also the idea that not only the cemetery was moved, but that they didn't know who was where and, does that suggest that they were just sort of putting remains wherever?
0: Um, I think it was a meticulous move to the post-secondary, but as they start finishing up, I don't know if it was carelessly done in the end, but for those headstones to be moved and it being recorded was probably the reason why it was being recorded. And they did Mm -hmm. keep track meticulously. But one of the things was that something had happened to the headstone and they do replace them a lot. So it was recorded that this used to be little plumes gravesite and his headstone. But when they moved it, they put a different headstone there. And we knew that all along. So when we talked to the army about it, we were like this report and this research points to the fact that this won't be his remains. And then we were like, we still need to go forward. And in the end, it was a lot of hard feelings because the family of Little Plume wanted so much for it to be him, but we already kind of knew. But it hurt so much. It hurt so much to know that, like, that just the resentment of, oh, you know, they didn't care about our kid enough to have the right information there. It hurt so much to know that, you know, here we are trying to do this in a way that is important to us. It's not even still taken seriously. So in, a, mm-hmm. I, I broke down crying, honestly, that night because I was like, I knew this was gonna happen, but I didn't know it was gonna feel this way. And I didn't know that it was gonna hurt so much. And then for me to still have to go tell the family, the elders of that family, that it wasn't him, we knew it wasn't him. Is it possible we come back and get him again? And they were like, yeah, we want to. But it was so hard. It was like a funeral, but not a funeral. So I wanted to take
3: it back to your dad. Trauma from boarding schools is not the only spiritual wound that he carries in his life because right after he comes home from Haskell, which is the boarding school that he attended in Kansas, he gets drafted into the Korean War. And as you mentioned earlier, he had PTSD from that. But then there's this other blow to him, which is that when he returns home from fighting for the U.S., He's told that a uranium mill is going to be built on the land where his family was living in Wyoming.
0: What happened? One of the things they did when he did come back from the Korean War was the Bureau of Indian Affairs had come down and said, "Um, we gave you guys enough time to move. You guys are gonna be removed by the eminent domain. My dad didn't know eminent domain meant taking your land without compensation. They didn't know that Mm. they were basically being evicted from their land. After Allotment Act had happened, everybody was receiving land. Every family was receiving land. Uh, The land they Mm -hmm. received was through the Allotment Act. The Bureau of Indian Affairs later came back and said, we're taking this land based upon eminent domain. You always have so much time to leave. If you don't sign the paperwork to say that we're we are taking this land you're gonna have to leave because we're gonna put something here so him and my mom they had just married and they moved a little bit west of where this plant was and we still live there we still live here Mm -hmm. that uranium in situ site basically had yellow cake and growing up driving by it every day we drive by yellow cake and i'm like look dad gold i was a little kid look, that gold. And late, later on, I never knew we were going to have high rates of cancer, high rates of, you know, death in our increasing pollution and contaminants in our, our area. Our water is contaminated. They did bring in a new water line. And sometimes that water line would break growing up. They took us off our well water. And um, they told us there was radionucleides in our water. And we used to swim in it as kids. You know, we'd put the well water in water our trees, put it in our little pools, whatnot, and play in it. And so that played a huge role in his growing up, him having a family because it went abuse after abuse, after abuse. My dad, he thought at some point in my life, I would like to just be accepted. I would just like to know yeah. that people aren't here just to exploit and take, take, take it needs to be an interaction of reciprocity. And it was never that. And. What things he wanted was closure with a lot of that. And when he passed away, I think he finally got his closure coming to mm-hmm. amends with knowing that he did as much as he could in his life to, to live it in the best way he could basically.
3: Well, this has happened to so many mm-hmm. tribes. When the Bureau of Indian Affairs did this, did they offer any compensation? Like what was the conversation with your father's and his family members. Um,
0: I had these same questions growing up. They end up going back to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and looking for actual documents and receipts to show that this land transaction happened. Well, they don't have the receipts. They don't. They can't prove any of it. And so that was kind of closure for my dad too. Was tracking down this paperwork and looking for receipts and who signed what over. While well, they didn't have that proof, they didn't have any of that. One of the things that he tried to get compensated through was the land back buyback program
3: mm-hmm. and
0: he realized like the land wasn't being appraised for that amount that he thought he should be compensated for and i agreed with him when you lose your livelihood because they did ranching at that time he lost their livelihood he lost their income how do you protect your family when you're relied upon But somebody comes and takes that from you when you have children to feed your home is going to be there how does that make you feel when you have to move out of there as a man especially Mm -hmm. you know as a man you're the protector the provider and when you can't make that happen for your own family you know what does that do to them so those are the types of things i grew up dealing with with him to get closure for too i think the colonial perspective too is we're here to do what we need to do make america great right but they don't realize all the grave injustices that they're doing to tribes to exploit them, continuously extract, you know, resources from reservations, the land that they've continuously exploited <laughs> and continuously exploit, whether it's cultural appropriation, whether it's intellectual property, whatever it is, they're still taking from us, you know, how much more can be taken from the tribes? My dad would say he went off to war to fight for a country that never fought for him. Yeah. So his whole life, he was like, I'm always being mistreated. My whole life I've been mistreated. At what point are they gonna actually treat me right? At what point am I gonna be included into something good that makes a difference in my life?
3: I'm wondering kind of what you think about colonialism and white supremacy as a symptom of a patriarchal society. Like, do you think that those things go hand in hand with each other?
0: I do, I really do. That's something tribes are trying to get away from today, um, to not only be able to heal, but to move forward, to live in a way that is sustainable, to live healthy. Um, We're so used to abuses and violence. Um, That's the colonial perspective that a lot of Indigenous people have. A lot of tribes right now are really moving forward and trying to decolonize wealth, they're trying to decolonize energy, they're trying to decolonize how we move forward, how we're structured and reclaim who we were. Because those values, even though they were beat out of us, they were real, those values of who we are in tradition and culture. For me, I couldn't even go forward in my life if I didn't have a, a stable cultural identity if i didn't know who i was that was one thing my dad grounded us upon was like know who you are so you can go forward and that's Mm -hmm. true that's what we need to do as a nation but a lot of general society in america doesn't want to acknowledge any of that let alone put into motion how to acknowledge land theft what does that look like if it's sustainable life and it's um, 30 by 30 green initiative then you know what we probably do that and move forward Because nobody wants to live in the past. Tribes don't want to live in the past. We want to go forward, we want things to be better. I really feel like a lot of the time, what we do as tribes is to preserve who we are, but to actually have positive interactions with non natives. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know of any time we've had a positive interaction of, you know, us all coming together. It doesn't happen in society
3: hmm Tell me about the 30 by 30 initiative that you just talked about. That's an example of, of decolonizing how we look at energy sources.
0: I see decolonization going through rematriation. Rematriation is that reconnection to earth, acknowledging mm-hmm. that we can't just leave this planet in trash and treat people like trash and go somewhere else and continue this violence, you know, because that's what's perpetuated. Not just in America, but all over the world. Um, and then we want to continue to colonize other planets. Like, are you kidding me? You know, that's that's absurd, you know. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I think rematriation reconnects us back to the land. We value it, we respect it, we know we need clean water. And it's not just the rapples, we don't feel like we just the rapples are so sacred and important. We feel like everybody should have clean water, everybody should have clean air. Everybody should live healthy. Everybody should be able to live in a way that sustains them. And that follows the green initiative that they're proposing right now. 30 by 30 is you need to at least have 30% of your carbon footprint eliminated by 2030. And that means going forward, even with tribes, because we're an oil and gas tribe, we need to figure out how we're going to sustain our lives for the future. How are we going to generate revenue for healthcare and education. It's not coming from oil and gas anymore. Where is it coming from? And how do we look at those types of systems moving forward in a sustainable way? Mm-hmm. The idea of just
3: the word itself, the rematriate versus repatriate, this is a deletion of man from that word um, and healing that way. What do you think future generations of Arapaho people will need to live in a world with more rematriation and decolonization to really go
0: fully into that. I think it's going to take healing. I think it's going to take understanding what happened to us and it might be a part of our DNA that we live through PTSD, but also know that there's another part to our DNA that is strong, that does have resiliency, that does incorporate strength for us to survive and that's what we need to tap into now that we need to heal and we need to move forward we want to move forward we want better lives we want better communities we want healthy kids and in order to do so we need to tackle these demons now and we need to get them you know dealt with and then hoping that in the future our youth acknowledge it don't take it for granted but understand solely why they're in the positions that they are, is it took a lot of sacrifice to get here. It took a lot of determination and not giving up to make sure that our young people have a future.
3: What do you What do you want people who are listening to this to know about the Arapaho people and their future, what you hope for them?
0: I think if people knew how beautiful and intelligent and proud they are. um, I think that would be the biggest thing because we have so much to offer. Um, We have so much to offer in the respect of science, math, English, all of these things that were brought to us. We already had that here. And if we were to tap into that knowledge, we would be so much more knowledgeable in our plants and our animals and how to manage the land and appreciate it. Because without that, you know, we can't have homes, we can't have sustainable lives. And I think if you were to tap into what Arapahoes know, I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, our songs, our language, and I can't do it without (laughs) trying.
3: Nope. This is a tier acceptable podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I read an, an interview with you where you described him. I loved this description. You said that when he died, you lost your native Google. Yeah. Um, Because he was so just filled with information. Yeah. He let you know his, his one of his dying wishes was that you find a home for this collection of artifacts and heirlooms that he had you took the collection you put it in a museum in fort collins a discovery museum right yes tell me about going through that did you start to go through his archives before he passed was that something that you were working on with him before he died my daughter's gonna be
0: 15 and it took me moving home carrying her being pregnant but really just sitting down and going through these boxes i start going through them and it was like, these are real important papers. Why are they just in this box? Mm-hmm. And then I told my my older sister was like, hey, we need to probably start looking at these boxes. And she was like, okay. And she was like, Dad has more in his room. And he had like boxes of papers everywhere, anywhere. And um, so slowly over the those the course of those 15 years, he was like, I want to write a book. I want to put all these photos together. So that's what we helped him do. My sister was really good about organizing them and putting them together and writing down what he wanted. What were you finding? A lot of historical documents, um, a lot of paperwork based upon who we were as Rappel, a lot of photos, a lot of stuff he wanted to write a book about, and he did write. So a lot of notebook information there. He just put all of that information together and wanted to make a book and digitize it and make it available to his grandkids because he knew he wouldn't be here to pass on that knowledge. And he worked with museums a lot because of what he used to do as um, cultural resource management stuff. And so he worked with a lot of them, identified a lot of artifacts. And so he had that connection already. One of the things he asked them was like, I have this collection of stuff. I kind of want to see it come back to the homelands in Colorado. And then people in Wyoming reached out to him and he would go visit. And he was like, I don't, I don't foresee it being there. Um, if we had our own museum here on with the tribe, it would have been here. But by the time he did pass on a lot of that stuff we couldn't keep because there's no space, you know, where it was at was a temporary trailer and it started falling apart this past winter. Mm -hmm. and so i really need to get his stuff somewhere i really people really need to realize how important it is to the history of the Rapples.
3: your dad's archives are now being housed temporarily what do you need to properly archive them
0: right now we're looking at funding where we want to be able to fund a curator a curator to digitize possibly hire interns possibly make exhibits possibly share that knowledge within tribes within our own tribe it's going to take funding basically to be able to do that whether it's a donation or whether it's looking it up and saying hey you know um we're willing to help whatnot that's basically what it's coming down to we're running to look for grants we're running to look for funding and that's the biggest resource for tribes whatever it is it's always it always comes back to funding how how can we make things accessible We can't do it without funding. I want to be able to digitize a lot of his information so other people can have that research and have that knowledge along with our grandkids and tribal members, but it won't be possible unless we have the funding to do that. A lot of what tribes gone through, you know, we're just one tribe amongst so many others in this nation who have gone through and experienced what we've gone through And as a tribe, as the Rappo tribe, we're not alone. We know there are other tribes out there who are struggling their hardest to make amends to our history so that they can move forward. And they are only wanting to move forward so that their youth can benefit, so that they can have better lives. And we know we can't go back to the teepee and the buffalo. But what we can do is bring our buffalo home and reconstruct our teepees and bring that knowledge to our communities. And that's one goal I do have. And through my dad's collection, we're, we're, we're going to be able to do that and move forward and teach people about who we really were and be proud and be really proud of who we are. And if people are willing to listen and you can convey that to them, I think that that was his biggest message was to understand that, you know, what we have to say is just as important as everybody else's story. I lost my father three years ago and
3: sometimes when I'm afraid or when something happens I can hear his voice in my head really clearly or I can hear him saying things to me. Do you ever experience that with your dad?
0: I, I hear my dad every day. I do hear him when I do need encouragement and I do feel need to feel brave and um, I still dream about him. We still talk like it's normal like in my dreams and so I know that he's still there and there's times when I'm like dad, you're just messing around. You know, we got a lot of work to do. You need to, <laughs> you need to get back here and help me. <laughs> but there's times like that where I'm like, oh yeah, what would dad do? You know, what would I need to do? You know, what would he say? It used to be harder as, as I grieved him when it was early, when he first passed away. And I would be like, who am I without my dad? Who am I without my dad? You know, really, who am I without my dad? Cause he had a lot of knowledge and so slowly i've had to become brave in knowing that you know what i am my dad's daughter and i am gonna do what he told me to do and i need to do it because other people are relying on me and he would look at me and be like it's your turn you need to go It's your turn so here i am you know
3: on friday may 28th the weekend that this podcast was being edited The remains of 215 children were found on the grounds of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in Canada, which also has its own painful legacy with these schools. Canada's now defunct Truth and Reconciliation Commission spent years trying to understand how many kids died in these schools concluding through research that the number was about 3,200. That boils down to about one in every 50 students enrolled during the program's nearly 120-year existence. In September of 2020, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Deb Holland, who is now the Secretary of the Department of the Interior and the first Native American to serve as a Cabinet Secretary, introduced a bill to form a, quote, truth and healing commission on Indian boarding school policy. The bill would establish the first formal commission in the United States history to investigate, document, and acknowledge the abuses, deaths, and lasting traumas of these schools. The bill did not pass, but Senator Warren plans to reintroduce the bill this session. If you're interested in seeing the documentary Yufna and I talked about, The film title is called Home From School, The Children of Carlisle. The website is homefromschoolfilm.com. To donate to the digitization and preservation of Mark Soldier Wolf's archives, you can go to the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery's website at fcmod.com. Org backslash donate. And then the comments you can write that you would like for the funds to go directly to the curation of the Mark Soldier Wolf collection. That's fcmodorg. Backslash donate.
1: Tell me about your father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1 888 318 Dads and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tell me about your father. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Ann Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum.